has been called the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. All righty, it is that time to dive back into what we've been calling the crown jewel of the New Testament, Romans chapter 8. Man, Romans chapter 8, such beautiful, rich insights and encouragement. We look forward to diving back in, not before a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Now, Father, in this veritable gold mine before us, Romans chapter 8, such wonderful supernatural truths about how much you love us, how secure we are. There's never any fear of condemnation or separation or defeat because we're in Christ and Christ is in us. You are our God. And if God is for us, who could be against us? So, Father, we look forward to what you have for each heart. You have ordained our footsteps. Nobody is here by accident. There's something that you want to say to each one of your children. Help us be receptive to that truth and let our hearts be set free. In Christ's name, amen. It's always a happy occasion when someone who is rescued later is reunited with their rescuer Uh, Always very moving. You know, you often see it on the news. You know, somebody here rescued um, from a fire, obviously. It's, It's a wonderful thing to see that kind of joy and a chance to thank the one who really rescued you. Now, when someone comes to our rescue, bails you out of some kind of trouble, Uh, There's always a sense, of course, of obligation, a sense of indebtedness, right? The old-fashioned way of saying thank you for lesser favors was much obliged. Uh, It's a term that we don't really use much anymore. You can still hear it used uh, in old westerns or maybe on a rerun of the Waltons. (laughs) You know who would say it? John Boy would say it. You know, when somebody did a favor and they brought over a meal, he would take the meal, set it down on the table, and he'd say, much obliged, right? Because John Boy realized that when somebody does something nice for you, out of the way for you, uh, especially when you didn't deserve it, or it was at great cost to someone, that you were, in some sense, indebted you had a sense of obligation, right? It just, that's why you said, I'm much obliged to you in light of what you have done for me. Well, you stand up for me, I'll stand up for you. You were a friend to me. 
I'll be a friend to you. You came through for me. I should do the same for you. Now, the greater the cost to the one who is doing the benevolent deed, uh, the greater the sense of your obligation to that person, right? Well, this works in a spiritual understanding as well. Of course, that's where we're headed. Now, because the Holy Spirit wants to kind of reason with us along these same lines that God has done so much. And we, so we, so we started with the opening chapters of the book of Romans, where it said we were, you know, set on a very uh, terrible path of destruction as objects of God's wrath, deserving as we were sinners opposed to him, exchanging God's truth for a lie and all of that. And yet we end up as children of God, forgiven of our sins, acquitted of all wrongdoing, joined to Christ as heirs with him as well-loved children of God. And he says, that came at great expense to God our Father. Therefore, there should be in us a sense of obligation to him that we are much obliged to serve him, to live right before him because of all that he's done for us. This is where the Holy Spirit is going. He's clearly just said, there's therefore now no condemnation if you're in Christ because the Christ was, came to pay for all of our sins. He laid down his life. He was innocent, but he let the wrath of God strike him in your place so that you could be forgiven, reconciled, and live forever, never having an accusation raised against you for all eternity, scot-free, off the hook, everything for nothing. Therefore, we pick up in verse 12, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to your old life, your sinful nature, to live according to it, for if you live according to it, You'll die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your sinful nature, body, flesh, it's all the same there, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, that spirit, we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So there before you, the inerrant word of God for our consideration, not just to hear not just to know, but to put into practice. So much, in blo- much obliged indeed, right? Let's walk through these six verses I've been calling a gold mine. We'll di- dig a little deeper, look a little closer to see what it means to be made part of God's family and to see if we come away from this text and this text alone with a sense of, obligation, not to ourselves, not to the cravings and desires of our sinful nature, 
not to the world, but an obligation to the one who has set us free. And so why don't we isolate and just walk through here and first notice with me, as children of God, now we have an obligation, the text says. Therefore, brothers and sisters is always in that word, brothers. We have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Not to the flesh is our obligation, but to the spirit, as we say. Now, not surprised that this reminder that we're not obligated to obey the old sinful cravings, but we're obligated to Christ, it comes on the heels of the announcement, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't surprise me at all that he's saying, now that you know that there's no condemnation for you, not in your marriage, if you're in Christ, not in your marriage, not in your parenting, not in your careers, not in your daily life with Christ, you will never be condemned. There's no condemnation possible in every area of your life. He can say that to us, and then he has to remind the sinful nature in us, because there's no threat, doesn't mean there isn't any obligation still, because that's how the sinful nature works. That's how sinners think. Sinners need laws in order to do the right thing and to comply, right? So, for example, uh, two or more are needed in the car uh, to uh, drive in the carpool lane, right? You know what? If you get caught (laughs) abusing that, $490, that's a lot of money. And it's posted right there. By the way, it says $490, will come out of your bank account if you think that you're the exception to the law, right? Or, you know, you do not throw out the the wrappers from your double-double out the window in some parts of California because if you get caught doing that, there are fines of up to $1,000. I've seen that sign. I wanted to pull over and just look at it because I couldn't believe. Man, that was an expensive stop at In-N-Out if you got fined for that. But you see, if there was no fine or threat, the freeways would look even worse than they already look because sinful men who set their mind on what's wrong and what the sinful nature desires, they need laws, they need threats. The Holy Spirit isn't afraid to tell his people, therefore, there is now no condemnation, there's no fine. For Christians, even when they fail. So the sinful nature says, oh, now I'm not obligated to take the high road, the the harder way, the more disciplined, the more noble path. I'm not obligated anymore because there's no threat hanging over my head because he just said it. And now he corrects the sinful nature that says, are you kidding me? Because there's no threat, now you're going to go. The reason he can tell us that we'll never be charged with any crime, even when we've committed them after we've been in Christ, is because of who we are now. Let me show you what Ezekiel prophesied about who we are. He says, there's coming a time there's going to be a new covenant, a new testament, a new way of dealing with God's people. And here's what he says. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and, you, and all of your idols. 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and make you alive inside and put my spirit in you and control you and dominate you and, and lead you and empower you to follow my decrees from your heart because you're alive, you're born again. So you can tell this person, oh, there's no threat hanging over your head. There's no fines. There's therefore now no condemnation in your marriages, in how you conduct yourself. Even as you walk with Christ and you fall short, there will never be a charge against you. You can tell people who have been changed, who don't want to do the wrong thing because they've been changed. Look at your text there. A new heart, a new spirit, the Holy Spirit inside you leading and guiding and changing and transforming so you can tell a person like that, hey, there's no condemnation for you because they're not obligated to go back to the way they were when they were filthy and dirty and a heart of stone and dead in their sins and trespasses. This is who's going to abuse grace when you're this person? This person doesn't abuse grace, but if you're not this person, then you're the person who abuses grace because you've never tasted it and you don't have the spirit and you haven't been cleansed and you don't feel any obligation to him because nothing happened. There wasn't a transaction where you feel obligated at all. So this is what he's saying. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then we can go back to the verse and he says, Therefore, just so you know, brothers, we have an obligation, and you're expecting him to say to the one who set us free. But instead, because he just told you you're off the hook, don't go thinking because you're off the hook that you don't have an obligation. He says it's not to your old self. How would that be possible? The very thing Christ came to do was to set you free from all of that. And now so the fine's lifted, and you're going to go back like the sow that was washed off clean, she goes back to the pig pen because she didn't have a heart change. That's a proverb in the Bible. Or the dog that returns to what it vomited up because it's still at the end of the story an untransformed feral dog. And so he says, not you guys. You don't have an obligation to go back to the feral dog or to the sow. Because why? Because the threat's gone? No, because you've been changed. And that person has been dominated, dead, and buried, and unplugged from that power. So you have an obligation, you see. And at what cost? He says, I will cleanse you. How did that happen? Oh, the Son of God screaming out in torturous pain, spilling out his blood. That's how you got cleansed. I put my spirit in you. How did that happen? God had mercy on you, opened your eyes, softened your heart, convinced you of your need, and entered you. You have the spirit empowering you, all at a dear, dear cost to God. Therefore, we have an obligation, brothers, not to the old nature. Let me put it to you this way. You like Disney? You like Cinderella? And when Cinderella gets unlocked from the attic or the basement, whichever version you're watching, and through supernatural providence, she winds up marrying who? The king's son, the prince of the kingdom. 
She's no longer obligated to cower and obey that wicked, oppressive stepmother or the stepsisters for that matter. Now, can you imagine? She's in the palace. She's married to the king's son. And the king's son, the prince, is standing by her side. She's all clean and bright, beautiful. And in comes that wretched stepmother and says, Cinderella. <laughs> that was pretty good. Come on. <laughs> I didn't even practice that. It just came out. Cinderella. Get clean the cinders back in the black soot where you belong. Go back groveling in the ashes. You know who you really are. Get busy serving me. <clears throat> While the prince is standing there in the palace with the palace guard standing by. I don't think so. It's not going to happen. She's going to say, you will remove thyself <laughs> from this place or you will be removed. I have no obligation to that. That's what he's saying. Come on, who do you have an obligation to? Not the things that once bound you but to the one who set us free. So let's continue on, verses 13 and 14. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God, that's the test. Those are really the sons and daughters of God. So let's take a look at this. First, you know, if you're taking notes, we have uh, an obligation, and it's not to our old nature, but to our Savior. And then secondly, we have some motivation and a strategy. The motivation here is not to invite death to come on in and do its thing. So we have motivation. He says, if you sin, you're going to die. Now, that's not a threat. He's just told everybody, there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus <clears throat> because the law of the gospel set us free from the law of sin and death. So there's no threat, but there is a friendly little reminder, a warning that our, your soul may be safe, but uh, you, you're not exempt from the destructive effects of sin. And that's what he's saying. So he's saying, you don't have an obligation to live like you used to live. And, and uh, on top of that, do you remember that that way of life, when you sin, it invites death and destruction, uh, and you don't want that. So that's just a reminder. And notice he changes from we will die, right, to you will die if you live that kind of life. So here's what he's saying. Christian or non-Christian, Sure, there's no condemnation for you in Christ. But if you're going to, to be unwise and to sin, you invite death. Whether you end up in heaven or not, it's sort of like this. If you go swimming in a lagoon where there's a big sign that says, danger, big hungry gators swim in this lagoon, and you go swimming in it, guess what? The gators are going to chomp down on you whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. You're going to get eaten by the gators, right? They don't care. So as a Christian, if you sin, you're going to get chomped on just as bad as an unbeliever 
who's swimming in that lagoon. So he's saying, so by the way, as a warning, you don't want to obligate yourself to the sinful nature that you once lived by because that sinful nature always gets you into trouble. And so that kind of, here in verse 13, take a look at it. There's a kind of life that leads to death and there's a kind of death that leads to life. I like Moffat's translation, the first part here. There's a kind of life that leads to death. He's saying, if you live under the control of our lower nature, we are on the road to death. That's what it is. So it's not like he's saying, if you sin, you're going to die, and you're going to fall over and die, though there are sins that you, will com- that you can commit where you will fall over and die. I mean, drunks <laughs> go out and get killed, or addicts will suffer death. Uh, You can die from being sexually immoral these days from some kind of terminal disease with no cure. But here what he's really saying is is that when you live under the control of your sinful nature, which you are no longer obligated to do, but if you choose to because you still can, you're kind of sowing poisonous seeds in the ground or you're setting the rudder into the storm or you are pointing the nose of the airplane in the down position. When we live according to that old, rebellious, insubordinate, self-sufficient nature that we all have, you're inviting this kind of death and destruction. So he's saying you might want to think about it. You're no longer obligated to lust, but if you do, just know what you're inviting in. You're inviting in death. You're no longer obligated to be greedy or a gossip or to lie at your convenience. You're not obligated. You don't have to. You have the power over it. He's going to talk about a strategy right now, right here in your verses, how to deal with that. But he says, when you choose to do that, you will invite various forms of death. So if you live under the sinful nature, you will die. There'll be a death in a marriage. There'll be a death to a career, a death to a ministry. We see these things happen all the time as a consequence of thinking you're obligated still to obey the cravings of your sinful nature. He says you're not obligated. It's no fun, so don't do it. You don't have to do it. You have power over it, and here's the strategy. Here's the kind of death that leads to life. He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the shenanigans, the mischief, the evil doings of your sinful nature... You'll live, meaning you'll enjoy life that is truly life, as Paul tells Timothy. The abundant life in John chapter 10, that's what he means by saying, if you put to death those misdeeds of the body, those sinful impulses, if you put them to death by the work of the Spirit, you'll enjoy life the way God intended it to be. A clean conscience, joy, a sense of Uh, No anxiety or worry, freedom from fear, guilt and shame and all of that will be yours if you put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now notice, and this is helpful, when you're tempted to lie, let's say, or to seek revenge or to nurse a grudge or to lash out in anger, you choose your favorite sin, 
He says, where does it say here? He says, don't dally with it. He says, don't reason with it. You're not to resist it in your own power. Necessarily, you don't ignore it. Here's how you deal with it. You kill it by the Spirit's power. One writer from the 1600s says, you need to be about killing your sin or it's about killing you. Now this, the old school word for this theologically is mortification, right? Because the King James for to put to death is to mortify, right? Right now, mortify means to be shocked or uh, ashamed kind of thing. But it used to mean to put to death. Now, that phrase put to death, it really means to put to death. When Jesus looked at his disciples and said, hey, some of you, heads up, they're gonna put you to death, Same word. So you don't tolerate it. You don't resist it. You don't reason with it. And and really, as helpful as counseling is, I love Christian counseling. You don't counsel it away. You execute it. You kill it. You crush it. You starve it. You take no prisoner's approach to it. Do you know what a sin is? You know what a sin is. Every time you're about to sin, you're aware. This is a sin. This isn't right. This isn't becoming of a Christian. Every single time. And you have a choice every single time to either go with it and feel much obliged or to, according to this verse, kill it. Well, I was talking to, I talk to young men all the time who struggle with all kinds of things. And I'll I'll say, are you killing it? Or they just say, well, I'm struggling with it. Struggling with it means I tolerate it. Sometimes I knock it out. Other times when I'm, when I'm feeling obliged to it, when, I, when it's convenient, when I want it to be in my life, then I allow it. This is not the way to find life that is truly life or the abundant life Jesus is talking about. He says, when it's identified, warning, 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 that's a sin. That's wrong. Yeah, that was Will Robinson's robot. (laughs) Warning, warning, danger, danger, Will Robinson. You kill it. By your own power, no, but by the spirit. Now, how do you kill it by the spirit? Well, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, we see the spirit with a weapon, and it says the sword of the spirit is the word of God, and that is this text's understanding of how you slay your sin is by the word of God. Jesus was tempted. Jesus used the sword of the spirit, the word of God, three times quoting a verse against the devil in Deut- out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And so this is what he's talking about. Not negotiating, not struggling with it. I understand what you mean because I've said the same thing. And we are struggling. But God's commanding us, I should say. Listen to how the dictionary describes take no prisoners as an idiom. It says to be ruthlessly aggressive or uncompromising in the pursuit of one's objectives. Ruthlessly aggressive, uncompromising in the pursuit of your objective to say no to it. You're not under any obligation to commit that sin because you're not that person. You're not a person who enjoys sin. 
You're not a person that's destined to reap the consequences of that kind of sin. And so uh, there's a great saying that says, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. So love the word of God, quote the word of God, read it, sing it, share it, listen to it being read to you, meditate on it. Your sin doesn't have a chance when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and with the word of God. And that's who you are, he says. You'll enjoy that abundant life. This is who we are, God's sons or daughters by definition, and you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are indeed the sons of God. That's amazing to me. One definition of who's saved and who isn't saved, who's going to heaven and who's not. Here it is, the definition of a Christian from the Bible, those who are led by the Spirit of God. It doesn't say those who go to church or have Christian T-shirts or bumper stickers who, or those who give in the offering, those who are even baptized. Though some of the things I'm mentioning are part and parcel of the Christian life. The definition here is that God's Spirit has come in, changed you, and now is dominating to be led, you're following, you're a follower, you're a Christ follower. You're obeying, you're under, you're being led by the Holy Spirit, and that is what makes you different from those who don't know Christ, who don't obey his word, and who are not going to inherit eternal life. How, does, how do you know that the, the Holy Spirit is leading you? Well, he leads you not into temptation, he leads you to have a soft heart. He doesn't lead you to, to tear people apart or to gossip or to slander. That's not the leading of the Holy Spirit. To be vengeful, to nurse a grudge. That's not the leading of the Holy Spirit. So you might as well just make a list of how the Holy Spirit would lead a person and then say, is this the way my life is going? And then you'll know truly if you're a son or a daughter of Christ because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Amen? That's the truest test for sonship right here before us. I like one thing before we move on, finally, to the last point. Uh, Charles Spurgeon on what it means to be led by the Spirit he says, we are led as we cooperate with the leading. It does not say as many as are driven by the Spirit of God. No, the devil is a driver. And when he enters into men and, or into hogs, he drives them furiously. Remember how the whole herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea Whenever you see a man fanatically and, and out of control and wild, whatever spirit is in him, it is not the spirit of Christ. Send your emails to Charles Spurgeon, <laughs> 777 Pearly Gate Way, because he's been with the Lord for a few hundred years. So finishing up here, for you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a different spirit, the spirit of sonship. And by that spirit in our hearts, we cry, Papa God, Dad. The spirit himself testifies, tells our spirit that we are truly indeed God's children. 
Now, if we're children, guess what? We're heirs. Heirs of God, get this, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we're the real deal, we, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And so, as children of God, just uh, reviewing, we have an obligation not to our sinful selves, but to the Spirit of God. We have a motivation. We don't want to swim in that lagoon anymore. We don't have to. Uh, we have a strategy. We kill our sin by the power of the Word of God, led by the Spirit, because we're children of God. And now here, finally, two things. We have a father and a future. So here he's just saying, hey, when you live under the dictates of the Holy Spirit and for Christ, you have way better benefits. So he's just going to just say, listen, let's compare the two lives. With God as our Father, there's an absence of fear, there's an assurance of salvation, and surely there's a future hope and inheritance for you. So an absence of fear. So here's the contrast. He says, we didn't receive a spirit, really, that enslaves us and brings fear that ruthless description of our sinful nature. And, the, and what, what, what does he mean by fear? A slave again to fear. Well, back when you're sinning, you're afraid of being exposed. You're afraid of judgment. Really, ultimately, you're afraid of death. You're afraid of meeting God and all of that. So he said, that's not part of your new life. You don't have to be worried about that. He says, but you've, instead of being a slave and, and subjected to fear, you've received a spirit of sonship whereby in your heart, the spirit leads you to call God your dad. A lot of people don't get this in the world. They think being a Christian is you just find a new way to live and you start, you know, you stop doing this and you start doing that and the other thing. Somebody was talking to me the other day saying, you know, I'm just not into it. I have a friend who's really into it, you know, and I just stop them all the time and I say, when did I say anything about it? I'm not serving any it. Who wants to serve in it? Who wants to lay down your life for it? Nobody does. But I will lay down my life for a father, a father who loves me and gave his only son so that I could get adopted in, so that he could rescue me from where I was headed. I was going to perish. So he says, hey, we have a different spirit here, and there's no fear. Now, 1 John chapter 4, I love it. It says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. So when God is your father and Christ is your Lord and payment for all of your sins, there's no reason to fear because perfect love, and that's definitely perfect love, has driven away that fear because the fear involves being judged or humiliated or ashamed or perishing, punishment. And he says, you don't have that. You have a father. You have a savior who died for all of your sins. You don't have a reason to be 
afraid. And it's by that spirit we cry what? We don't cry, as good as this is, we don't cry, I'm a child of God. We don't cry, I do good deeds. We don't cry, I go to church. We don't cry, the spirit doesn't lead us to cry out, I have sound doctrine, even though that's pretty good, right? Or I resist sin, that's what the spirit tells us, right? I do good deeds. It says, no, the spirit in you causes your heart to cry out, my father, my dad, Dad, Papa, God. Let me show you a picture. Just to... That's what it is. This is the Christian life. This is who we're obligated to. The one who made us his child. We were objects of God's wrath. We deserved judgment. We were all under that spirit of disobedience that's in the world, headed to perish forever. And instead of just letting us off the hook, he reconciles us and puts a spirit in us and changes us and cleanses us, and puts a new heart, a new nature, a new life, a new destiny so that you cry out, Dad, my dad. It's a world of difference than it. Amen? Amen? And it causes you to want to discipline your life because you're obligated to him. You're much obliged. (laughs) Are we not? We're much obliged. I got another picture. I couldn't pick one, so you're going to see them both. That kind of love. He will never stop having that kind of love for you. He will never do it. He says, because you're in Christ Christ is in you. You're not obligated to go back and listen to that other voice that invites death and destruction into your life, no matter you're saved or not. He says, but you, no more fear, no more obligation to do the bad, wrong thing. Pay those consequences now. You got a dad who made heaven and earth by speaking. Genesis chapter 1 blows me away. And it just throws out a sentence like, and he made the stars. That's what it says. Do you just read that and go, oh, well, yeah. Yeah. You look up at the stars and it says, and he made the stars too. I can't make a grain of sand. And I get to say, Dad, Papa God, wow, that's, Pretty cool. Then he goes on to say, and listen, if you're a child, guess what? Then you must have an inheritance, and so you must be an heir. An heir to who? An heir to who you're looking up to. An heir to God, co-heirs with the Son of God, so that everything Jesus stands to inherit, he equally bestows upon those who are joined to him. We are children of God, joined to the Son of God, and we stand to inherit all things. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we could live worthy of who he's made us to be, who we're becoming? That is who we are. We are heirs. Let me close with this story. I've used it before. I was interim pastor in a church uh, in San Francisco for about a year and a half, and after I preached a sermon one Sunday morning, a young man came forward. He accepted Christ as a savior. I was hearing his story. 
And I asked him what he did. And he says, I don't do anything. I'm trying to figure myself out. And I said, well, how do you not do anything and drive that really nice car you told me about? He goes, oh, he goes, ah, I'm an heir. And I said, what? What, what does that mean? He goes, oh, so we've got family money, family money, generations, money, money, money. And I said, oh, it must be so hard for you. <laughs> he says, I said, where do you live? And he says, Pacific Heights, six months out of the year, and then I live in um, Times Square there, you know, some penthouse for six months out of the year as well. And he said, you know, but, you know, he said, something's missing, and I found that today here. I found that. I think I have a new direction. I have, like, I know what I should be doing. I mean, it's not about the money or, or being bi-coastal. That's a word he used. <laughs> He's bi-coastal. <laughs> oh, yes. Where do you live? Oh, I'm bi-coastal. <laughs> yeah, he says, no, it's not about that. You know what? Our, your inheritance is secure the Bible says that he's given us new birth and living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you. Now, listen, that dude's inheritance, it's vulnerable. There, you know, we have economic collapses, you know, all, all the time, all over the world. Stock markets crash and all of that. You know, thieves break in and steal. You know how it goes, right? But you, my friend, are signed, sealed, and delivered by the blood of the Son of God who made you a co-heir. Now, you are much obliged to live for your liberator, not your former captor. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you... Oh, Lord, that <laughs> what you've done for us, uh, we do feel obligated to you in a sense of love to lay down our lives and do your will, Lord, because you gave it all for us. We thank you, praise you, commit ourselves to your care. In Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.